Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Hey everyone, this is number three in our four-episode run with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, celebrating their new album, Unlimited Love. Today you'll hear a very special conversation between Rick Rubin and Flea. Flea is one of the most iconic bass players of all time, and along with singer Anthony Kiedis, one of the all-time great musical ambassadors of Los Angeles. He talks with Rick on today's episode about how he rock-starred his way into USC to study music theory, remembers tearfully telling John Fushante how much he missed playing together, and tells Rick why he reverts back to his 15-year-old self anytime he argues with Kiedis. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin with Flea. Yo. Hi, Rick. How you feeling? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Pleasure seeing you, man. Thank you. Do you want to just talk about what it was like going to the studio, making the new album? Yeah, I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, we just did the work, you know? Like, I don't know how it is for people who have never made records, but you just do the work, man, you know? Like, all the homework, the countless hours that we spend alone sitting in a room, you know, how can I contribute and following these feelings of something that makes us feel a certain way. Like, like I know for myself and for John and for Anthony, I mean, we all have a different way that we do it, but like, I just sit in a room at the piano and start hitting the thing until at one point I'm hitting it in a way that hypnotizes me, that makes me feel like, ah, like, <laughs> you know, 
And then it's beautiful. And the same thing with the bass. Like, this playing. And, like, I played 10 zillion bass lines in my life. And when I start playing one, it's like, oh, this is different than one I've played before. And I'm drooling right now. There's drool coming down to my fucking belly because I'm gone. And it takes me away. Like, it opens me up to a place that is beyond thought, beyond action. It's just me in touch with God, you know, me being completely present and complete as a human being in that moment, that's good. And it might not be the right thing for the band, and it's still that, like, thing, like, coming in and being kind of like, well, I got this, you guys, what do you think, you know? And sometimes it's like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I feel that. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I, like, still crestfallen because I still care so much. And ultimately, for us as a band, that's what really matters is we still really care. And if this thing that we do was at all just as a means to an end, to have to put out a record so we can do a big tour, so we can have a hit, or so we can get this or that, we'd be fucked. There's no way we would be doing anything important or relevant in any way. But because we care deeply, not only about the quality of the thing, but about the quality and the meaning and purpose in the process of making it, in like the thing of like this is a ritual that is a sacred ritual when we go into work with you when we go into work by ourselves alone at home sitting alone going into work with the collective every day like this is a sacred ritual we do this we we open ourselves up to channel something bigger than us and to shape it into these songs and that process you know the fact that we all care deeply about that is why the music has thought and care and love in it and for me, it's still deeply relevant to the universe. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the reason that people resonate with it and have for so long is that it's, it's much bigger than any of the people involved. We're, we're tapping into something serious. Yeah, man. Tell me about learning to play piano. Well, it's a slow process that, <laughs> you know, I'm still a humble student of it. You know, I guess, like, I still feel the same way with the bass. I'm still a humble student of it. It was, guess, gosh, now it's like, when did John quit the band? In 2010? Something like that. Yeah, it was around then. And then about a year after that, I, I got the idea to go to college, to university and study music. And I went, I kind of rock-starred my way into USC because I didn't have the high school grades from 30 years before to get in. And got into the music program there and went and, and uh, took theory and composition and jazz trumpet. And just to do the theory homework, I had to sit at the piano because we were analyzing Bach chorales and stuff. And you had to read it and then write this sort of the numer numerical equation of how the music worked, like how the chords related to one another. And um, it was so great for me just because I had never thought of music in any way other than you know, emotionally and intuitively was my complete relation to music. And I had, you know, the most minimal academic schooling. Like I knew what an octave was and knew what a scale was, but it was all feel for me. So to start thinking about it academically was such a beautiful way to engage my mind and made me start loving math for the first time and really seeing the magic in numbers. But, but anyways, in order to do, the, to do that work, I needed to sit at the piano and also in analyzing the Bach, which was kind of the crux of the, the academic studies, it made me fall in love with Bach. So I started buying the most remedial Bach piano pieces and trying to learn them. 
and uh, then got like the Hannon book and started just really loving the feeling of the piano under my fingers and just started playing it. And, you know, whenever I have time, I play it. Oftentimes my, my work is too consuming for me to have the practice time, but it's just this ongoing thing. And it's funny how you ever know, like when you're learning something new and you do it for a while and you start, you know, you're learning the technique to do it or figuring out how it works. And then you don't do it for a while and then come back and somehow you're better. Like yeah. your brain has had like done these, this work without you. Yes. Yeah. Which is a really amazing thing about how the brain works like that. Like I, there's the conscious work that it does that you're aware of. And then there's all this subconscious work, which is, and that's like amazing to me. And I'm kind of like discovering that as I get older, that, that there's all this work going on that I don't know about. And it's such an amazing thing to, to witness, to see. Would you say learning piano and music theory has impacted your bass playing? Enormously. In what way? For one thing, having a richer understanding of how the bass line relates to the chords. And you start learning about chords and playing left hand and right hand together, so you're always interacting and you're realizing... I, it's like stuff that I would do intuitively, but seeing how, okay, so... It's a C chord. If you're playing a G, that's the fifth of the C. So you're all of a sudden the C chord is getting a different color because of what's in the bass. And just being aware of how that's working and just kind of having more of a, an understanding of not just kind of getting lucky of when I'm hitting what note against a chord, even though luck isn't the right word because I'm still reaching for the color, but kind of going into it with a deeper understanding of what the chord is and what notes. You know, just kind of having... Uh, an arsenal of, of colors to paint with and just really helping me like that. So, yeah, it really helps. And, you know, obviously it's like oftentimes in my contribution to the Chili Peppers as a bass player, a lot of songs will start with a bass line or with a series of bass lines that go together to form different sections. And when I'm thinking of chords and what chords the bass lines might imply while I'm doing it, it just helps me to create better bass lines. Are there any songs on the new album that started with you at the piano? Yeah, a bunch. Well, not the one for sure that was, you know, very corded out on the piano. Started with piano chords. First time you played that on piano for the rest of the band, what was that like? Uh, well, I always get nervous <laughs> when, I, when I bring a song in, especially on the piano because, you know, I'm, I'm not that adept at the piano, but I, I really felt good about it. I thought like, oh, this is, I remember like coming up with it, thinking like, this is good for the band. Like, this is a beautiful thing. And um, no, they were, they were very amenable to it from the beginning. It kind of changed over time. And I think what became the chorus was initially a bridge. I, in my head, it was a bridge the way I had originally thought of it. But Anthony really liked singing a chorus part over it. And once we decided that was a chorus and not a bridge, then it kind of needed to change a little bit. And John had an idea to change the chords at the end of it when it goes, blue skies are falling, da, 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 da. And it kind of has this descending chord pattern. John added that in there. And that really uh, helped it a lot. Yeah. At the end, you notice I play this little um, bass melody. And um, originally, for me, that was the vocal melody that I had in the verses. And in my head, that was always it. But I didn't want to, you know, say to Anthony, oh, here's the vocal melody, because I knew that he would want to come up with something 
and let them do it. But then when we were tracking it, and I did the bass later, which is rare, because normally I record the bass as one of the first things that we record with the basics. Yeah. I just stuck it in there, snuck it in there at the end because I didn't want to lose it because I always liked that melody. But I guess it is kind of more of an instrumental melody, you know. I'm so happy it made it into the song because I love that moment in the song. I feel like it's a really beautiful part of, of the whole thing. Yeah, it's a nice little outro. But yeah, no, it was good. And, you know, so oftentimes, like, something, the way I imagine something being is uh, by myself when I'm coming up with it compared to what it becomes once everyone starts putting their two cents in is something uh, much different than what I anticipated. And that's, that's awesome. It's a trip in our band in the creative process because we're all so different and have a different view of music, you know, and, you know, which is all intertwined with different worldviews and different views of ourselves and different views of even what the band is, you know. And with John coming back to the band, who's, you know, obviously a very powerful creative entity and an individual entity on his own, knows who he is, you know. You know, in, in, in ways it can be difficult for all of us because we're all so different and so we'll butt heads or have differing opinions about stuff. But it's crucial to, that's why, you know, what we're doing is so powerful, or for me it's powerful, is because we're all bringing something completely different and each thing is of, of, of a profound significance to the whole as opposed to someone, you know, repeating what another guy thinks. So it's harder, but that's how it is good. When you first heard Anthony's melody for it, how did you feel about it? Great. I felt great. And I, and I, cause I was kind of waiting in my head. I was like, I ought to show him this vocal melody, but he came in, I think pretty quickly with it. Like I came in on the piano and it was like a matter of days before he came in and was like, I want to sing over that thing, over that piano thing. And, um, it was great from the beginning. And I'm always just so happy as if I come something, cause oftentimes, you know, both for John and I, we come up with things instrumentally and that we really like but you know if Anthony doesn't feel something to sing on it it's never going to become a song many many pieces of music have just gone into the ether because you know just he didn't feel it and fair enough you know but so I'm always just really happy when he comes <laughs> you know and does something and when he do, and he does something that I love great you know and sometimes he'll do something that, to me like I was like oh I really had imagined something else but just because I imagined it doesn't mean that it's better, you know. And that's taken time for me to learn, too. Like, there's been many songs where, like, from my first gut reaction is, oh, no, it should be this other way. But it's something that's really beautiful that I just don't, you know, from my limited view. Let's talk more about this song. It's just interesting. You, you bring it in, you play it on the piano. Did the ethereal guitar part happen next or did the vocal melody come next? I think John started doing the ethereal guitar part right away. And that's something that's amazing about John. Like I came in with the chords and pretty much, except for rare circumstances, he does the right thing right away. And even if I imagine something completely different, what he does is so beautiful and great and in touch with what I'm doing yeah. that it's just the right thing. And, and, I, and I think that happens vice versa too. Like, I think that's one of the things that we really love about playing with each other is we don't have to talk about it much. Once in a while, it'll be like, oh, you know, I'm trying to accomplish this thing in this little part, so could you try doing this or that? But we do the right thing for the other guy's thing. And it's not a matter of, like, virtuoso musicianship or being a great musician or something. It's just, like, I don't know if it's just similar reference points or, the way, or like, sympathetic nervous systems or some sort of telepathic 
subconscious understanding that we have with one another, but we just do the right thing to, to complement what the other guy's playing, and he just started doing it right away. And it could have been something completely different. Like, like I actually made a demo for this song because it was like a couple of months we took off when the pandemic first happened and we were kind of like just stopped rehearsing because we were almost trying to figure it out, you know? And I was making little demos in my garage and I had like a little beatbox and a, you know, and all these different things and which gave me an idea of what it would be. But it was completely different when he started playing and it became this real beautiful... And then Anthony writes these lyrics that are you know, this really melancholy sort of yearning to, you can say like, I'm not the one, you know, that you're looking for, but underneath it, I feel this deep yearning, like, when is he going to be the fucking one? When is someone going to be the one? When can I find this togetherness with another human being? You know, which I feel is kind of a lyrical theme throughout this record, you know, this like deep yearning to connect. I even had a, a stupid idea for the record to be, <laughs> to be called The Yearning, which was like, you know, it sounds like a fucking Disney Hallmark, uh, you know, special. So you said you had, uh, you have like a, almost a psychic connection with John when you guys play together. Has it been like that from the very beginning? Yes. I think that, you know, the only reason it ever wasn't like that, which would probably be like, you know, when he first joined and we made the first album, Mother's Milk, is he was still super young. And I think the only thing that would get in the way of it being that is like kind of like tension or nervousness, like, oh, what's the right thing to do and not trusting yourself yet. I think it took him a while. He was so young and he came in and we were already kind of a popular band. And I think he, you know, was um, just kind of concerned about, you know, how do I fit in? What do I do? What's the right thing to do? As opposed to just like letting go, which is by the time we started working with you on the next record, which was Blood Sugar Sex Magic, that was completely there. Like he had let go of like worrying about what was right and was just, you know, letting his, his, uh, letting it flow, letting, a, letting God take over. How would you say your relationship with Anthony has changed over all the years that you know him? You know Anthony since, how old were you guys when you met? 15. And now we're, you know, our next birthday is we turn 60. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the majority, the majority of your lives have been together. <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy. I mean, our relationship has, you know, grown and changed and been joyous and been tense and fraught with suffering and hurt and um, been accepting and like been through so many dynamics throughout the course of it, you know. So we meet when we're 15 and we become like inseparable every day. We're together all day long. You know what I mean? Like, Right after school, we get together. Where are we going to get some weed? What are we going to do? What's the hustle today? Where are we going to go steal something? Where are we going to go run around? What, you know, what the fuck are we going to do? We're going to do something. We're going to do it. Do it. Just dumb shit and beautiful shit. Like really loving the things that we love, the nature, the art, the music, the, the places where we connect. You know, and then the, we start the band when we're 20. And it already seemed like at that age, the years between 15 and 20 are, are huge. It's like a year of 16 and 17 and 18 are like 10 years now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of, you know, because time actually does speed up, which is fucking insane, which I'm realizing it actually speeds up. Like, theoretically, I'd heard that before, but now it's like I feel it so intensely. It, so it seemed like ages had gone by. Like when we started to band it, it seemed like we had been friends for lifetimes. 
But then we start the band, and we're still very much in that kind of street kid mentality. You know, everything's a hustle. Like, I remember, like, we started the band, like, when we first, like, record companies wanted to sign us and stuff. And it was kind of later on, and they're, like, taking us out to lunch. <laughs> and we're still in the mindset of, like, hustling a lunch. So it's, like, getting, like, you know, different guys to take us out to lunch. Like, yeah, we'll get this guy on Tuesday, that guy on Wednesday. Like, we're still thinking, like, let's get them to take us somewhere expensive. Like, it's still this whole fucking thing of, like, not just, like, <laughs> like what would be the best thing for our music and a record company, but, like, how many lunches can we get? We're still in this complete street kid, like, mentality, you know, like... Um, let alone like thinking the long term of like like what's right business wise or or music wise or anything, which is so funny to look back at. <laughs> but in terms of our relationship, you know, creatively, it really hasn't changed. Like the essence of what it is and what it's informed by, which is so much still, and I think the longevity of it is so formed by those years as kids, like kind of like growing up in our own weird misguided way without real mature guidance or like anyone holding our hands into like this is how you become a man this is how you become a grown-up these are like the tenets of morality and and you know <laughs> like we just didn't you know and it, i don't think i even started growing up until i got sick in my early 30s you know to be honest but it's still rooted in that like when you're with someone and you're going through these big changes and even though you're confused and bewildered and also like kind of like bumbling around like just trying to avoid pain and go to pleasure you know what i mean it's just like survival together and something about that is really deep you know and and i was kind of thinking this morning like about how like, as the years have gone by, there's been so many times when it was difficult between us, and I think it also works against us, that child stuff, because we can get into, like, these scraps or be offended or hurt by one another in a way that's so fucking childish. It's like we revert back to being these, like, completely emotionally fragile and immature 15-year-olds in our 50s. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we go back to that between us, yeah. and it can be really difficult, and... I think recently, like, we had something like that where we were doing that, and it was, like, so painful, you know? And I'll go back and be like, fuck, I'm done, I'm out of here, I, don't, I can't deal with this fucking shit anymore, fuck this guy. And I realize I'm acting like a child, but, you know, because we're both acting like we go into this place, you know? And, and we kind of talked about it, and we're like, you know, we do that. And we both acknowledged it. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. And it's kind of like, you know, we need to, you know, we don't need to do that. I'll do it with other people. You know what I mean? Other people piss me off and do things that I, that I find, you know what I mean, offenses. Yes. Um, but with him, we go there, you know, it's like this constant argument. And so, you know, I always feel like we're growing, but, you know, I felt like that before <laughs> too. But I was thinking earlier today, getting back, sorry, there's so many tangents I could go down, that the band being so successful, right? We've been, the band's been together nearly 40 years. And from the beginning, like, to me, even though I know, like, the real, like, business success and selling a lot of records didn't really happen, you know, until we had, you know, made Blood Sugar and we sold, you know, a gazillion records. But for me, like, from the first concert, we were wildly successful beyond my dreams that I could ever imagine. Like, I had been playing in bands before that and working hard, and, you know, I'd go to my full-time job all day, then go to rehearsal afterwards, and everything was like, yeah, come on, we got the gig, and trying so hard. And from the first Chili Pepper gig where we had one song and played for, like, four minutes, the way that it felt between us and the way that it 
we connected with the audience and everything about it was like an explosion of success in the most like earth shattering way that I'd never felt that I didn't even know. And I played in fear and was already playing big gigs with them. And like, you know, it was like all that in an underground way. It was huge in LA, you know, but, but all of a sudden it was like, man, this is like, I, it was, we were done. It was completely successful at that point and never got more successful for me. You know, I can't speak for everyone. And then, you know, and then like right away, like within months, we were like selling out nightclubs, lines around the block to get in. We were playing with the Bad Brains and the Minutemen, these bands that I really loved. Record companies wanted to sign us. EMI, Enigma signed us. Like everything that had been struggling to try to make happen just happened effortlessly. And, and we just played and it was just like this, this thing, you know. So anyways... Success kept mounting, and then, you know, we got gradually more and more popular, and then we made Blood Sugar, and it really blew up, and it became like an arena band in this, like, really big rock band in more like a mainstream record-selling way. And, you know, I believe in God, Rick, you know? And I'm not a religious man, you know me, but I pray every day. You know, I really, like, it's a big part of my life, my connection to the divine and nurturing that. And, and um, I know that my life is going better when I'm staying in touch with you know, going, trying to be inside and stay connected to that part of me and my relationship to God. And I was thinking this morning, like, success is all fun. It's great. Look, I'm, I like making money as much as the next guy. And I like, you know, living in a nice house and buying a bitch and stereo and all this shit. But the real reason behind it with the band, I feel like in a lot of ways, like that God put me and Anthony together to learn some shit. And we're here together to figure something out in a way that, and, and like, I think, I'm, I don't think, and I don't you know, obviously I don't know, but if the band hadn't been this thing where it was like really successful, we probably would have gone different ways a long time ago. You know, so many times I want to go join a fucking free jazz band and just play trumpet and, and, and but it's like, oh no, there's all this work to do. You know what I mean? There's another record to make and there's a tour to do and there's this to do and oftentimes it's like grueling and painful and like, like my survival mechanism as a human is like, no, I don't want to go hurt myself. I'm okay. I can go do something else and grow creatively and, and like grow cerebrally in all these ways. But like success in a lot of ways has kept us there doing it. And it's not the reason, not like saying like we do it for the money, no. but it's like when there's, when there's work to be done, you got to do it. And, we're, and we both have like very intense work ethics and disciplines in a sort of blue collar thing like that. You do your work. You get up every day because you work. What's, there's a mission to life, you know? And I kind of started seeing it in this divine way and it felt really beautiful. Like, like there's a bigger picture and we're being put together to understand something, you know? And I remember once a long time ago, I went to go see this hypnotist and it might have been through you that you might have recommended me to this woman, I can't remember, in Santa Monica. And I went and lay on her couch, and I remember she got kind of frustrated with me because I didn't get hypnotized. And my, I was just too crazy to be hypnotized. <laughs> like, my mind never fucking shut off. But she was, like, talking to me about stuff, and she was like, go back in time. And I, and I remember, like, like, kind of being in this, like, semi-aware state and seeing me and Anthony, like, lifetimes and go lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes like long time ago and we're like fishing by this forest and we're dressed in like this like kind of like skins and shit like animal skins like having to survive in this like different 
caveman time, but not that far back, but something like that. And it's like something that we're supposed to figure out and that the universe puts us together to learn this shit. And in this lifetime, we've been put together to, you know, by this circumstance. It's beautiful. It's interesting hearing you say that because what I think about is the nature of your relationship with Anthony really isn't about music. Music's a part of it, but that's not what it's about. And it didn't start about music. It went on for five years before it became about music as a job. But it's it's more like almost like a karmic relationship, whereas your relationship with John seems much more rooted in music. Absolutely. Talk about when 10 or so years, 10 or 12 years ago, when John quit the band, what was the feeling? What was it like? You know, it's different because he quit. That was the second time that he quit. And... This is a crazy thing to say, but such a relief, man, because he was so unhappy. I see. And he's such a huge part of the band, and everything about it was making him unhappy. You know, he's so great at music, and he sees so much at music that he didn't, he was wanting to just do, you know, make his vision happen, and... He didn't want to have to collaborate and listen to what someone else had to say that would be different than what he was thinking. And so it kind of caused a lot of tension for him and for everybody. And, you know, I can't speak for him, but his yearning to leave and, and to grow in a different way away from the band was so powerful that when he left, it was like, okay, the right thing is happening, you know. And both times it was like that. But the big difference is the first time he left, we're in Japan, he leaves, and, and it was so exhausting and stressful and everything, not just, you know, the band itself, it was really stressful for me at the time, um, but when he left, it was like, okay, now what are we going to do to keep it going? And, um, you know, we just, you know, went through a different series of events and ended up with Dave and made another record, kept going and stuff. But this time when he left, I thought, my thought was, I'm, it's over. I didn't think we would keep going because I was like, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't make sense. I don't want to get someone else and go on without him. Like, we've done all this great work. And, and it also happened, like, before he left, I had, we had had a thing. I said, I want two years away from the band. I need, I need the time off. Like, I just knew for me to, and that was when I went to school, just, like, did different creative projects, like, just wanted to go and grow in a different way, in my own way. And um, I didn't think that, that the band would carry on without him. And time went by, a year and a half maybe. You know, everyone else wanted the band to keep going. And I remember kind of having, like, thinking, like, I just, you know, I just didn't know. I didn't think. And then it just started making sense to do it. Like, everything. Like, my relationship with Anthony. The band itself is a thing. Like, I remember, like, like a big thing was people saying to me, like, oh, we, like, you know, the, we, do, we do so many fundraisers and things. And, like, someone said, like, and, and, like, started seeing, like, God, how valuable the band is, not just for, you know, our personal success or for making people happy because it brings joy to the world, the band's a light, but just like that as a thing, like, as an entity that really gives love and goodness to the world, which maybe sometimes I can't see because of all the work that can be, be really grueling. And But, like, I can, I can see it really clearly, like, when someone's saying, oh, will you do my thing to help hungry people? Like, oh, shit, oh, we don't have the band going right now, can't do that. And that kind of is being, like, that where I'm seeing it really clearly, but that element of it is there all the time, even if it's not a fundraiser. 
and and that started becoming clear to me and then I was just like like I was doing some other creative project and it was good like we were we were making music that I liked and then thinking like shit man I really want to bring this energy to the band and, and make the chili peppers happen we can do this and I remember like uh, something clicking in my mind like I got ex really excited about it again and and then um you know went to Anthony and you know he was into it and we did it we we got Josh did you keep up with John during the whole time that he was not in the group? Yes, both times, and not all, not not consistently because it's you know it can be a little awkward and stuff you know, but mostly like the second time like because you know we went on without him and I didn't think that I would and I told and I I told him too I'm not going to go on without you, and I felt like like God I kind of betrayed what I said, you know but then I decided you know and I made the decision to do it you know people change their minds I changed my mind. You know, a lot of our most popular songs were musically initiated by him and created, like, in, in large part by a musical idea that he initiated. And here we're doing, like, going and doing it with someone else. But and so I, I, I was torn in a lot of ways, you know, in that way. And I guess it wasn't so much that, like, that was my first thing. But then it just felt like in a lot of ways, like, you know, we're having someone else play his shit all the time. You know what I mean? And like, like getting together and playing recently with him, you know, we're rehearsing right now to go on tour. And we're, you know, when we play the older songs, it's like, oh shit, now we're doing it for real. <laughs> we're not doing like the cover version. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's an extreme way of saying it. It was never the cover version. But like in that way, it's sort of like, oh, now the real guy is playing the real shit. And it's nothing against Josh, because Josh honored it in a, in a beautiful way. And I'm so grateful for Josh. And I love the stuff that we wrote with Josh, too, and loved Josh. Like, not only was he a great musician, he's a very supportive team member for us. But, yeah, when, when he left, you know, first a relief. And then as it went on to, like, the initial relief of, like, you know, the tension at the time. But both times as, and particularly this time, as time went by, like, this real something that had peaked around the time he came back, like this yearning for that effortless connection, that thing we are talking about earlier, you know. Because with Josh, it's just, it was like, yes, Josh is a great musician, but it was oftentimes a lot of talking about what to do. Can we try this? Can we try that? Can we do this? You know, hey, you know what I mean? Not wanting to be offensive. Can you try doing it this other way? And him the same way with me. I'm not saying like, oh, he didn't understand. Like, I didn't understand. You know what I mean? Like, he would play something, and I was like, well, what's the right thing for me to do here? And that's just different reference points, different nervous systems, different things that you can't control. And like spirit things that I don't think we understand, or, you know, I, I, or that I don't, at least, I, you know. So, you know, just really wishing for that effortless connection. And as soon as John came back, it's there. Like, every time I've come in with something, you know, like something that starts with a bass line. You know, not from a piano, and it's like, John just put the perfect thing from the beginning. Like, boom, done. There it is. They don't have to talk about it. It's just a knowing. It's a gut reaction in your kidneys. Yeah. Tell me about the, um, the first time that you played with John before he rejoined. What was that experience like? When was it, and what was it like? I think that I can't remember the first thing, but I remember, like, he and I were talking about some jazz he was really loving Charlie Christian, you know, the jazz guitarist who played in Benny Goodman's group. Yeah. And there was a couple of songs he was learning, and he was like, let's play some of this jazz. And uh, it was just fun, you know. 
Yeah. So it's fun to play that stuff. And then I think like he was recording something with some break beats and I came in and played on it at his house. Yeah, those were the first time. And then, like within the context of doing that, I think we just sat there and jammed a little bit. Just easy, man. Like just, it was never like there's some like big like the clouds parting or anything. Like just a couple of guys hanging out playing. No big deal. I don't, I don't remember any specific like, you know, it's just nice and easy, man. We kind of eased into it. John had the idea, like, let's not start trying to write anything. Let's play, play, hang out, and play covers. That was fun. Yeah. How did you get to the stage of feeling like maybe we should talk about doing this again? Yeah, there was a specific moment. <laughs> John and Marcy came over for dinner one night. I can't remember, like, either our, our girlfriends were talking in the other room or something, and we were just talking about shit, and I said... Uh, Sometimes I really miss playing with you. And when I said it, I couldn't help it. I just started sobbing. <laughs> I started crying. Like, and um, he looked at me, and I saw tears in his eyes, too. And, I, and he's just like, me, too. You know, one of those things, it was just kind of beyond words or thoughts or anything like that. Just love. Beautiful. Yeah, and then we didn't really talk about it again for a while. And I remember seeing Anthony after that, and I was like, you know, I think that John would come back and play with us, you know? <laughs> and um, at first we were kind of like, whoa, that's heavy. You know what I mean? Because we were like full steam ahead with Josh, you know? And I can't even remember when that was. We were like, right around, we were like playing the Grammys with Post Malone or some shit, you know? And then, you know, and shortly after that, like time went by, we were and then we were writing a record, a new record, and I think at a certain point we were like looking at what we had. Might have played some of it for you, I think. And uh, just feeling like, yeah, you know, we're doing it, but it just felt like we were missing something. And I don't, you know, and I, look, I like the shit we made with Josh. I really do. You know, and I think, I, and then I jammed with John once or twice, and it was just like that effortless thing. I, I wish I could explain it, articulate it, Rick, you know, like, but I, it's just this, the best way I can say it is like what I said before. We don't have to talk about it. Yeah. Do you remember how Anthony reacted when you said it the first time? I think a little taken aback at very first, like, because it's such a, huge change but you know then that that shifted and i was like you want me to talk to him for real and find out you know and he was like yeah <laughs> and so i went over to john's once again and sat with him and asked him said you know will you come back and uh, he said let me think about it and he thought about it for you know I, I i don't i can't i don't know what happened in his head but within a within a uh a day or two it was like yeah but you know and 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 I, you know, there were some things that he was concerned about, you know, like, because I obviously, when he left, it was painful for him, not just us, you know, it was painful for him. Of you know? course. And I can't speak from that side of it, you know, I can only imagine it's a massive change, you know, and how you spend your days and the anchors in your life and what you work towards and what you do. And sometimes you get everything you want, but, it, you know, and I think it's good for him to do what he needs to do. But he also, I remember him telling me, like, I'm born to be the guitar player in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm the guy that's supposed to be in this band. Like, that's just the truth. And yeah, so we, you know, we kind of went through those kind of like, like, well, would it, be, would it hurt? Would it not hurt? You know, what would we do to make it not hurt? And I'm like this and I need this or that. And it's all good, you know. Like, I'm a human being who loves to do music and me too. On this whole process, like this record with John, like, man, he's fucking good. <laughs> 
and the best way, he's just so fucking good at music, but also he's so humble now. And he could easily not be. You know what I mean? And all the things that he's doing, like all the great synthesizer work, all the ideas about mixes and sonic ideas and when to use reverbs or backward reverbs or what to do, like all his like big picture of music is so profound. He does so much, like the background vocals he does so beautiful he just knocks him the fuck out he does it he's all like really humble and and really open to having faith and honoring other people's ideas as well i never am working with him where i don't feel seen or heard or valued and um, that's a beautiful feeling do you remember when you first heard all of the lyrics that anthony wrote for this album what your feeling was when you saw what he was writing you know I always am struck first by the melodies and by the rhythmic phrasing, like the musicality of it. And um, it didn't really hit home until, you know, you guys went to Hawaii and started doing the vocals. Because I'd heard him and always thought, wow, he's really doing good shit. But when I started really hearing it, and you guys working together and the vocals coming back, how evolved and how focused and how great He's done, like, this is just the best he's ever done, I feel like, by light years. Yeah. Like, he's just fucking killing it, man. And Anthony is amazing in that way. And, and I've said this on other records, that the fact that he started off in the band as not really being a singer, and in the beginning, like, really having a difficult time carrying a tune in pitch, and, you know, just kind of like rapping and yelling, and then... It turning into melodies and slowly evolving. Like, I think that has everything to do with the longevity of the band. And I think that he's like, he has everything to do with the longevity of the band because he's such a like, this is my job. This is what we do. Like, this is what I do. My mother worked at the same job for 50 years. Like, me too. You know what I mean? Like, he has that real, like, blue collar thing about it. But his evolution as a singer is like this thing that every time it's better. Where most guys, like, usually as they get older, and obviously not the case, but a lot of guys start off as great singers and they just have this natural skill. They could just fucking sing. And 20, 30 years in, they're just kind of like trying to recreate what they did when they were 20. You know what I mean? Whereas Anthony is not. He's always going to something new and getting better and learning to sing. He's like this student of being a vocalist and his musicality, his sense of rhythm and phrasing, his, and the lyrics on this record... It always takes me a while with the lyrics, like especially the way that Anthony writes. Like he's not like a narrative type of singer. Very rarely is he. He speaks in metaphors and it takes me a while for them to sink in and to start making sense to me. And also he's very verbose. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of words and, it and a lot of times for me at first just kind of the color of the words and how they sit next to one another and how they make me feel that way. Like the juxtaposition of, of a words as opposed to the, un the real lyrical, the poetic content of the thing. Time, you know, they sink into me over time. Some of the songs when he was working on, the, on singing in the studio, and I'm listening to them, I'm listening to the cool nature of the phrases, like the phrases are cool and the melody's good, and I'm, and I'm liking it. But as you say, on the surface, you can't always hear what's happening. Mm -hmm. And... I'm listening and I'm listening and over the course of a day and I'll be singing a song and then at one point it like clicks in. It's like, oh, this is what this is about. And I start crying because it's so heavy. It's like, it's so sad. 
Some of them are so sad and heavy. Heavy and sad and lonesome. And, you know, obviously sometimes they're really light and whimsical and fun, you know. But it just gets me wondering, like, when he's writing about that stuff, or his, you know, his, his relationship to the world and to his heart, and like, I wonder if he always knows. You know what I mean? When he's putting the words together, really what he's writing about. You know what I mean? Or does it take shape? as he starts putting down the words, like, does he just have like a phrase that fascinates him? And does he start coloring around it and filling in, putting together this thing? And does the, like the real emotional underpinning of it, does it take shape? You know what I mean? Like, like sometimes, you know, you put something together, it's just how you're feeling in that moment. And you don't, maybe you don't even really know. It starts on a subconscious level. And then maybe there are enough clues from what's there to see, oh, this is, this is what this is about. I could go further in this direction. Yeah. I mean, having never, you know, sat with him through that process, I don't know. And you have sat with him through that process, like watched him. Yeah, but it's more like the, I'm with him the day it happens, but he's usually doing homework up until the time that we meet. And then he comes yeah. in and he, you know, presents yeah. what he has. And we talk about, is it, you know, does everything work as well as it can? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if, you know, I bet you, I guess all lyricists are different. I, I remember one time I did this, did this record. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever 
Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. I don't think, I can't remember if you produced it or not. I don't think you did. Did you, the, the LL Cool J thing for uh, the Howard Stern soundtrack? Yeah, I produced that. Oh, okay, so, and I can't remember if you were in the room when this happened or not, but we're getting ready to track it, and I'm sitting there with LL, and he doesn't have lyrics yet. He might have had like a, I think he had a chorus line. I make my own rules was the chorus line. And I'm sitting there like literally sitting next to him and he's got a pen and a paper and he starts writing the lyrics. And he started with just sounds. Ah, e, oh, ah, like what, how, and rhythmic phrase of almost like grunts and just rhythm and syllab- syllabic sounds. And, and then he started like, so it's a, ah, a word that has a ah, a ooh, a word that has a ooh. But then started doing it and putting just words together and writing lines around that. And then it, but it formed a narrative and a story and a whole thing, like rife with like current events and philosophy and his ideas, you know, of him. And I, it was so amazing to watch him do it. And also that like he was so free to like just do it in front of me like that, like, like kind of like let me watch him. And I was amazed by it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't know how Anthony does it. I don't know. <laughs> But he fucking rocked it on this album, man. He really, it's the best he's ever done. He's singing beautifully, like really, like, and he's doing it in rehearsal too. Like, this is no studio magic. Like, he's fucking singing this shit. Yeah. So the longevity in the band, you know, has everything to do with his constant evolution as a singer, you know. Like, he's always, I feel like he's, you know, there's always something around the band that's more, more expansive. There's also that, like the pride in the work that you guys have, nothing is ever phoned in to any degree. The fact that we recorded probably close to 50 songs and that Anthony wrote and sang 
50 songs, knowing 50 songs were not going to be on the album, but because he wanted whatever was on the album to be the best it could be. And we'll only know that if he does all the work of doing all 50 songs. And even if there's a, a an instrumental track that he's having trouble with, he's going to fight with it forever until he gets something because he sees potential in it and wants it to be all that it could be. And it's a real commitment to doing whatever it takes to be as good as it could be that when, you know, for a band that's been around for 40 years, is unusual. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't compare it to other bands because I don't know. So, But you do know because you work with lots of different bands. Phenomenal. Like, like, especially to hear you put it like that. Like, fuck. He didn't just, like, phone in some. Like, let me get this one could be really good. I'm going to do this one. Like, he took the one that was weird and did the best thing that he could and found something that really made it work and turned it into a song. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Talk about the difference between playing with Chad versus playing with anybody else in the Chili Peppers. Well, with Chad, it's funny because my, you know, my relationship with Anthony is very personal and very much brother-like. And my relationship with John is also very personal, very emotional, very intuitive, very connected. But my relationship with Chad is like, like we don't hang out outside of the band, never have. I've probably been to his house once, you know what I mean? It's like this different thing. But it's just this very grounded, rhythmic thing. It's like there's no bullshit about it, you know what I mean? There's no, not that the other ones have bullshit in them either, but it's just like we get down, we look at each other, and that's how we talk. We Very rarely do we speak about things that, you know, about emotional things or about spiritual things or about, even things that trouble us or, 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 you know, that we aspire to. It's just as we get down and fucking hammer out some grooves, you know. And it's cool. I remember, like, once Chad, this might have been his 50th birthday, like 10 years ago or something. And his wife went and, like, had someone come and film everybody talking about Chad for his birthday thing. And, and I remember feeling kind of like weird because I was like, well, I don't talk with Chad personally about stuff. And I almost was like embarrassed because it was like, you know, like, well, back when we were 21, I'm going to tell this funny story. But like, there wasn't this other thing. And I, and I kind of said, look, Chad and I, we don't really speak emotionally about these things that I would normally talk about under these circumstances. We talk by playing. We, we talk by by like looking at each other and knowing when to lay back into a groove or knowing when to lean forward and knowing when to sit right in the middle or knowing when he should lay back and I should lean forward or vice versa, like all these intricacies of rhythm, which color a song so profoundly. Like the way, I mean, you know, man, <laughs> you sit there and go and listen to rhythms, especially live musicians, like whichever way some person is leaning changes everything. And we do all this stuff just by looking at each other and afterwards, I was like, why the fuck should I feel like that's less significant than speaking or talking about, you know, our fucking inner child or some shit? Like, that is a, a beautiful conversation that Chad and I share. And um, I'm so grateful for that, you know, and that that's the way that we are. And that's what it is. And that's awesome. Do you feel like when you play with Chad, it brings something to the way you play that's different if you're playing with anybody else? Totally. Chad is so powerful. 
like physically powerful on the drums and the dynamic like that he can go to the potential of where he can go is so like like I've heard of elephants like the physical power and volume and strength of where he can go is always there so it's always coloring that if you want I can look at him and be like here we go, motherfucker. You know what I mean? And I know that he is going to explode like a fucking nuclear bomb. I better be ready to handle it, you know? And, and also, like, hey, it's time to get, you know, really subtle and quiet and beautiful. He can go there, too. Like, he's so dynamic. So it makes me just get down with him. And he's also, like, Chad's a very meat-and-potatoes drummer, like a real rock drummer, like, you know, Bonham-style you know, big kick on the one, big snare on the two and the four, you know, like that. He can lay that down heavier than any drummer I've ever felt before in my life. It gives me so many options. Like, I can get in there with him on that one, you know, and all of a sudden it's just heavy, like heavy-osity. Or I can dance around, you know, in between it, you know, and it does something completely different, you know, if I go on a syncopated in between the holes, you know. So it just opens so much up, you know, whereas I, you know, I've been fortunate in my life to play with like really great drummers, a variety of, and it makes me play completely differently depending on who I'm playing with, you know, like I play with Tony Allen, like the Afrobeat guy, and he doesn't like anyone going away from his kick. Like, don't dance around the kick, play on the kick, white boy. You know what I mean? It's like, don't come with some bullshit. And so, you know, I, you know, I love Tony, so I don't want to, I'm going to do what he says, you know. If I could get mad dogged by Tony Allen, you know. But yeah, so, yeah, playing Chad makes me, you know, and that's the sound that, that, uh, sound of the Chili Peppers and, you know, of that rhythm. Let's talk about you. So you, you can make a face and inspire Chad to go heavy. Talk about how it works live, because one of the things that's fascinating about the Chili Peppers compared to pretty much any popular band today is that when you guys play it is of this fluid thing it's not like you play the songs the same way every single night it's like you guys jam and things can go longer or things can go shorter and you've in the past have gone on stage and start playing where no one knows what you're gonna you know none of the individual members know what knows what's gonna happen someone just starts playing something and something happens you do that a lot all the time so Beyond the musical conversation that we hear, talk about you, John, and Chad looking at each other and playing. What happens? Who leads? And can, can all three of you lead at different times? How does that work? Yeah, definitely all three of us can lead at different times. And it's trusting yourself. Like, that's what it really comes down to is trusting yourself and the more that you can learn to trust yourself and love yourself and know that what you're feeling whether it's emotionally or spiritual or cerebral that that's who you are and who you are is of value and trusting the other guys to do something that's who they are and that's kind of the crux of everything with us because that's where like a lot of the songs come from jams like that and when we're doing that we're listening. You know, you really got to fucking listen. You can't just blunder ahead. Like, just play a song. It's painting by numbers, dude. Like, I'm not saying, like, a song is a vehicle for a beautiful connection and emotion to happen. And, you know, I believe in the power of a song. But if you're just, like, going out and playing the same shit every night. Boring. Yeah, it's boring for the musician. You know, it can work well if you're good at it. Fair enough, you know. But 
there's no element of risk. There's no element of danger. There's no chance to fail. And if I don't, if I go to see someone play, and if I don't think they're doing something that they might fail at because they're reaching, I'm bored. I just don't fucking care. And you know, I I, I get it. Like I'll go see a band. They'll play a song that I love, and it's just great that they're playing the song. But Neil Young, you know, people that I really admire, even great, great, you know, uh, electronic musicians are always mixing it up and doing weird shit. But but with us, in terms of the way that we relate to one another. I guess the best way that I can articulate it is listening and trusting and, you know, whoever starts something, you know, get inside what they're doing, listen to what they're doing, where they're going, you know, what mode are they in? Like, it's just so many things that have to happen quick in your mind. Like, okay, what key is it in? What rhythm is he playing? Am I going to come at it and just play something completely opposite to it? To like if John's playing something fast, maybe I'll do something really slow, just like a bath for that fast thing to relax in. Or maybe I'll go really fast right with him and we'll be playing together this jagged rhythm that's intense. Or I'll go really fast completely against him that'll create a counterpoint that's a whole new rhythm. And then what Chad does, does he do a halftime beat or a fast beat or just hits? You know what I mean? And no matter what's going to happen and, and we might completely fall on our faces and it'll suck. Or we might play the greatest thing we've ever played in our lives in that moment. And all of it's worth the risk, you know? And if you don't take the risk, you don't get it, period. Yeah. Talk about the Silver Lake Conservatory. Oh, thank you. The Silver Lake Conservatory is a nonprofit music school I started 20 years ago now. We teach about 800 kids a week. And we started off in a little storefront where we were for the first 15 years. And we had eight private lesson rooms and We'd like rent out different spaces around town to, for our group classes, like choir and orchestra and all the, you know, contemporary groups. And after raising money for like 15 years, we finally bought a really huge, big building up on Hollywood in Vermont. And uh, now we have a big recital hall and four group classrooms and 12 private lesson rooms. It's been so great, Rick. These last 20 years, it's just given me so much like I get so much joy from it I really thrive in being part of a community and feel like I'm doing something for a community and I guess like essentially that's kind of like how I look at playing music too even though like I said before like sure I like making money and all that but when I feel like I'm doing something that brings community together and helps in that way I feel a great sense of purpose so like I get I really get a lot from it selfishly and, and I love it and just like seeing the kids grow up, like now that we've been around for so long, I'll like go to the grocery store and run into somebody who's like, you know, 35 years old, an adult. And I'll be like, hey, you know, I went to my, your school when I was a little kid. And, you know, it really set me up with my friends that I have now, my best friends. We all met at the school and we sang in the choir together. And, you know, we had a band for a while, it didn't work out. Now I'm a whatever, you know, I'm a graphic designer or something. But... It's so nice to feel that, like, like it, it, it moves me, you know, to, to have that connection to community and feel like I'm of use in that way. It makes me really happy. What age are the people who come to learn to play? Little kids, like we don't have an age limit. Uh, like the, the, the thing is they have to be able to take care of an instrument and be diligent enough to practice it to do their work. That's the only requirement. So some kids can do that when they're five. Some kids can't do that till they're 15, you know what I mean? So, or never, you know? Yeah. So it's all different. The majority of students are between the ages of around like 
11 years old and 18, like in there. But we have lots of elderly people that come to play and, and real little kids. And if you qualify for lunch tickets at school, you go for free and we give you an instrument. And otherwise, you know, you pay. Uh, but it's just awesome. And um, I'm actually in the process of, with a, with a few other people, starting a new one in Watts, which is really, you know, rewarding as well. The thing that I like about it, and I guess it's the thing that I like about music too, is that I, my hope is like, and I feel like I've accomplished this with the Silver Lake Conservatory, is that long after I'm not on, I'm gone, it will be a music school there and kids can go in there and learn how to play, you know, uh, Benny Goodman stuff on the clarinet. And, you know, one of our, our purposes too is, is not just a place for kids to learn music, but a place for teachers to teach, which is just as important for a teacher to have the purpose of teaching, you know, and to this knowledge to be, keep being handed down. And, you know, we care about keeping the traditional instruments alive and, you know, teaching the oboe and the bassoon and the French horn and the viola and all those things. And it's fun. It's like, it's just fun. How'd you get the idea to start it? I had it in my head for a while, just because it just kind of seemed like a good idea. And then like a year before it opened, remember I'd like be dealing with a heartbreak of some variety and I went down to Mexico by myself and I was reading a book by a great jazz musician named Horace Tapscott. And it's a great book just for reading, you'd love it. He wrote a book called Songs of the Unsung. You know, and his story is really great. He's an L.A. jazz musician. And at one point, he got an idea to start a music school in South L.A. It was just, you know, for all the kids in the community in South L.A. And he started having this orchestra called the Orchestra. And all he, he had really also great adult musicians in it, too. And then when kids were good enough, they would join it. And they played every weekend in Lamert Park and at World Stage and did concerts and it was a real, just a beautiful thing. And his was like music and also um, literature and poetry and theater and all, all the arts, you know, and, but free and for everyone in the community. And it became, you know, a real connecting point in a community in South Los Angeles. And musicians that I love, like one of my favorite drummers ever is Billy Higgins. And Billy Higgins did it with him. And, and so that's a big part of his book. And he writes so profoundly about it. And I remember just being down in kind of a raw and vulnerable state down in Mexico alone. And um, I read that book and I remember just like the last page, like putting down, I was in tears. And Sorry, it's an emotional time. It was an emotional time. And I, but I was so in touch at that moment with how important that mission was. And I, I could resolve, I set it down. It's like, I'm going home, starting a music school, period, done. No matter what it takes, I'll pay whatever it costs. I'm hiring the people, I'm getting a building, I'm building it out, I'm starting a school. And I just went and did it. And just, you know, new people to help. I had a friend, my friend Tree, who'd been a music teacher for many years, hired him to be the dean, you know, just got it. My friend Pete, we just got together, found a contractor, got a place, built it, did it. So cool. And it was just like, with that resolve, when it's like, I'm doing it no matter what, like, top priority. And, I re and one of the lessons I've learned from having done it for so long is like, when you have a good idea like that, go with it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and the momentum of just what it is has carried it throughout the years. It's such a cool thing. I still can't believe you did it. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, every, many of us have cool ideas for someone to actually do it and do it for 20 years and have it build into the thing that it's become it's so cool, and congratulations. Great having that thank, vision thank, come to life. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really hope for this one in Watts to work out well, too. 
Cool, man. I love you. Love you, too. And, uh, you know, Rick, just to end it, I'm so grateful that we worked together again on this, you know. We didn't work together for a while, and, you know, the five of us together uh, all bring something that is so different, and, and what you bring is so crucial to us and has been for every record we've ever made together. And uh, I'm just really grateful for that. Thank you for being there. Thank you for including me. I'd love to be part of the process. Super fun. Awesome, man. All right, talk soon. Thanks to Flea for sharing so much about the inner workings of the Red Hot Chili Peppers and what it was like to reunite with John Frusciante. You can hear their new album, Unlimited Love, along with our favorite Chili Peppers songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee and Shangri-La Studios. Our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.